We need a generation of scientists that is different from the generation we have now because so it would almost be like if the cement of a building not only held the building together, but also told it how to build itself. So if you wanted to, um, you know, find a, a science, someone who would want to learn about the world, in my opinion, one of the first things you should teach them is. Welcome to the 15th episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Today's scientist is Daniel Fried, an upper school science teacher at the Pingree School and the founder of Biochemistry Literacy for Kids. Welcome, Dan. Hi, so nice to uh, be here. Thank you. My first question is always the same. Do you have a nice science anecdote or a fun fact for our listeners? Yeah, I have a kind of combination of both. So I'm working in this um, sort of new space where we're bringing college level uh, science down to the elementary level. So I'm running a lot of these Zoom classes to, you know, help kids and to show that this is possible. And something that came up just the other day, actually just a few days ago, is um, the very first vertebrate odor receptor complex was crystallized. And the first publication of this came out. There had been other G-protein coupled receptors and, uh, you know, transmembrane uh, receptors that have have uh, been crystallized. But this was the first one about uh, vertebrate odor perception. So the pr kids in my program, they start off in one of the early lessons learning about odor molecules and what makes things taste the way they do and, and smell the way they do. So when I made that lesson a few years ago, I said, oh, we don't really know how um, odors are you know, actually um, connected to their receptors yet. It's still unknown. There's this, you know, still a lot to be learned in science. But three days ago, this structure was published, and I was so excited to share with these kids who remember three years ago, not, you know, thinking that we would have this information, and now we do. So it was a really exciting lesson to go over that paper, you know, just like a day after it was published. So I guess the anecdote is, you know, we can be sharing, you know, cutting edge science with very little um, kids. And, you know, instead of maybe calling them little kids, call them, you know, early science learners or, um, you know, pre-scientists or, or future scientists, because, you know, what, what they are able to do is just as valid and legitimate as what uh, uh, adults can do. So what I what the, what the takeaway message from that class was, um, is that, you know, keep keep watching and <laughs> science will develop and then you will, you will be there to witness it if you know how to interpret it. So it was really cool, exciting class. Yeah, that sounds really cool. But also, it, it sounds difficult. Like, how, how do you explain that concept to children? Definitely not something that you could do to someone who, who doesn't have any background. So, um, so my job has been, you know, how do you create this background uh, foundational knowledge so that things like, you know, when, when a new uh, crystal structure is published, that the kids understand it and that they're also excited about it because just understanding isn't enough. They have to be like very motivated to want to do that. So we can talk a little bit more about like, you know, the nitty gritty of how, how do I create these lessons that resonate so well with kids. But, you know, these a lot of these kids that were in that lesson have been with me for three years. So something something about what I'm doing resonates with them and they want to stay with it. And when we get to these, you know, these cool endpoints where they can, you know, learn something like that, it, it's it's very meaningful for them. So you're a protein researcher? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's my background. So I started off um, at uh, Yale with, um, I did, did a PhD in a chemical biology lab, Alana Shepherd's lab. 
And in that lab, I was doing um, some protein engineering, um, peptide design and uh, testing. I was working with fluorescent sensors. So that's the kind of my background. In my postdoc, I was doing some enzyme expression with the bacterial cellulosome, which is a complex uh, of enzymes that digest cellulose in mainly bacteria. So that's kind of my background. So actually, the, the goal of biochemistry literacy for kids was to um, make people understand, understand protein science. That's kind of what the goal of this was. And maybe to start with the basics, like what are proteins? Because you have a lot of different types of proteins as well. You have proteins to build your muscle, but yet also uh, enzymes and stuff. So how, how would you define proteins if you have to explain it to children? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, um, by lesson, I think it's lesson six, the kids learn about or six or seven, they learn about amino acids. So amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. Um, this is a particular amino acid called cysteine. There's certain parts of an amino acid that's always the same. For example, there's this ammonium group, there's this carboxylate group, and then there's a, something else that you can add on to it called the side chain. And those three things together basically make an amino acid. And if you connect these in a specific way in a, in a long chain, it kind of takes on a life of its own, starts to fold up and uh, bond with itself. And it can also start to do chemical reactions if the sequence is just right. So that's the idea of what a protein is. So proteins are just very large molecules made out of this particular building block or monomeric building block. Um, enzymes do all the important things in life. So enzymes are in charge of releasing energy from our food. They're in charge of uh, making all the pieces of our uh, cells, basically. They're in charge of uh, replicating DNA. So they do basically everything. So if you wanted to um, you know, find a, a science, someone who wanted to learn about the world, in my opinion, one of the first things you should teach them is how proteins are structured and how they work. Because if you're like living on the earth, we live in a, in a, a biology that's based on proteins. So part of the reason I started biochemistry literacy for kids is like, I thought this was like a gaping hole in people's um, understanding about the world around them. You know, people were going through their whole life, probably never really getting much of what a protein was and proteins are doing and proteins are moving my muscles right now. I mean, everything that we see is um, in, in terms of biology is protein. So that was really the goal is to, you know, get protein science into the lower, lower levels of, of, uh, of learning in school. Yeah, because I think when a lot of people hear about proteins, the only thing that they can think of is we need to eat proteins. And especially when we want to train and have more muscles, we need to eat some more protein. That's like the main thing people think of, but that's not what you're working on. Right. So one thing that I did in the in the beginning to get more Instagram followers is I would always hashtag protein on all my posts. And most people who were following the hashtag protein didn't care about protein folding or amino acids or something. They were just doing like, you know, exercising stuff. So I got a lot of uh, probably unwanted uh, traffic because <laughs> yeah, but people don't really um, equate proteins with, you know, the structural building blocks of life. I mean, that's actually a lot more important than just like eating a protein shake in my opinion. So yeah, of course, I think the kids agree because it's a beautiful, a beautiful world. Um, if for people who want to uh, be watching this, I can share a couple of the beautiful structures that the kids learn about too, or that anyone can learn about, um, because that's, you know, it's this, you know, magical world of three-dimensional structures that are just so alien to us in our, on, on our level of life. But this is actually commonplace. Like actually our world is based on these things and we are made of these things. So that's a, that's a great thing to know too. And um, maybe also to get back a little on what you said before. So you said proteins are chains of amino acids. But you also said that they fold, so they have a specific structure. Can you tell us a little more about that? So if you are interested in, you know, 
kind of being sucked into this world of protein folding. Here's a typical folded protein. Okay, this is the green fluorescent protein that makes uh, jellyfish glow. All right. Now, when you show this to a person, the appropriate response is, wow, that is amazing. Can I learn more about it? Um, and that's really what kids automatically do. Not necessarily grownups, not all grownups uh, want to learn about that, but kids definitely do. This this is something that, you know, the, oh, you mean living things are made out of stuff like that? Like, I want to learn what all these pieces are. And that's actually the reason I got into protein science too. I saw a structure like this and wanted to learn. So let's look at the, the idea of a chain. So you can maybe see here, I'm going to try to isolate this, but see, there's like a chain. You can definitely see there's chains here. And those little yellow uh, dashes are what are called hydrogen bonds, which are a type of attraction between certain sorts of sorts of atoms and, and electrons. And it, it's actually what holds the whole thing together. So as you, if you look around the, the, the barrel shaped structure of this protein, you can see that there's the, those dotted lines are all over the place. And that's actually what's holding it together. So the hydrogen bonds are sort of the glue that holds together proteins, but it's also what folds it together. So it would almost be like if the cement of a building not only held the building together, but also told it how to build itself. So that's the really cool thing about proteins because they're self-assembling. So they're they're produced from the ribosome and they just automatically, they more or less automatically uh, fold up into a functional uh, machine. And those little machines are what do everything in life. So, I mean, this is, it sounds like, you know, a hundred years ago, this would have been science fiction, but now we're living in this time where, you know, just like I said before, every, you know, day, new exciting structures are being, you know, crystallized and, and we can learn about, you know, even people in the general population can learn about what these things are doing. Um, let me see if I can explore a little bit more with you guys. I have tons of structure. I'm trying to remember which one I brought up here. There's a specific part of the center of this thing. If I zoom up here, see the special little ring here? There's a little ring that has mm -hmm. two nitrogens. Yeah. And uh, I've done some extra coloring here, but the greens are just carbons. But this little area of the molecule is called the fluorophore. And this is actually what makes the protein glow. If It makes it fluoresce. So, you know, there's a certain chemical reaction that actually creates that ring, but that ring is from amino acids too. This whole structure is made of nothing but amino acids. Um, there's 20, there's a vocabulary of 20 amino acids. It's kind of like our, the alphabet of proteins, um, different combinations and, and sequences will give us, you know, all the diversity of the living world on the earth. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, this is why we call it uh, literacy. Learn the 20 amino acids, <laughs> learn the principles, the grammar that, that, that describes how to put them together, and then you have a new language. So that's how, that's how these kids um, do it. It's a, it's a language-based approach, at least in my mind. And um, they, do have a, they do have an extra language now. It's almost like a foreign language. And unfortunately, the only people they can talk to is me or <laughs> each other right now. So we're trying to you know, branch out and find ways like how do we, you know, how can this um, approach be used more widely? And what can we do with these kids who are now, you know, primed and there's kind of supercharged to contribute to the scientific world? So how can we connect them with people on the outside, not just me, because they, they need to, you know, get their feathers and fly away at some point? How can other people, um, you know, collaborate with the program to, you know, utilize these people, which have never really existed before? We've never had kids grow up as biochemistry natives. It's always something you learn later in high school, or, you know, in in, um, in in college or something. Something just like a couple, you know, a couple semesters, and then we kind of take care of it. But these kids are, you know, fluent in this language, um, so they're going to be a really different kind of researcher in the future. So what what can we do with them? That's what I'm hoping to get the you know ask that question to more people. That is a, an amazing difference. Like I think the first time I heard of biochemistry was probably at university, and now you're teaching that to to children. Like how old are these children? 
the program was started to go into grades two, three, four in, uh, or maybe two, three, four, five in, um, in a public school. And I did hundreds of classes in public schools like that. It really works. I have a few uh, papers about it. You know, education researchers kind of want, you know, massive longitudinal studies to prove that what you're doing is legitimate, but I don't have the funding or time for that. But I can tell you from an anecdotally that this is definitely working. I wouldn't have done 200 classes if it was a waste of time, but it really does work on, on a general population. Maybe third grade is the best time for it. But during COVID and because the because the program sat on the internet, you know, I was licensing it to, to some schools, but because it was on the internet, it started to attract homeschoolers and it particularly started to attract um, highly gifted homeschoolers. So while I always say that the program is geared towards, you know, especially the early lessons, maybe like third or fourth grade, it's attracted some of the most profoundly gifted, you know, uh, human beings in the world. And we have kids five years old finishing the program, actually. So can you imagine being five years old, completing a survey course on biochemistry that's a university level designed by a professor it's really really crazy so like what do you do with those people now you know what do you do with a, a little girl who's just turned six who can talk about you know beta decay and um you know watson crick base pairing and uh, whatever you want you know from from the from the curriculum it's crazy it is really insane to hear about how these children are grasping these concepts um, maybe to get a little back to your work. So you showed us a fluorescent protein and uh, you also have some papers on fluorescence. But what is fluorescence? So fluorescence is when you have uh, the absorbance of light by a molecule. A lot of molecules can absorb light. Molecules, especially that this is not a fluorescent, particularly fluorescent, but um, even DNA base pairs. So this is a part of a DNA structure. You can see there's lots of double bonds in it. So double, single, double, single, double, single. That's kind of a sign that the molecule absorbs visible light. And it's sometimes a sign that it's fluorescent. Okay, so certain molecules, um, fluorescent dyes, have that kind of general structure. Lots of often it's rings, often it's um, this uh, conjugated double bond system, the single double, single double uh, bonds. So what happens to these molecules is they absorb uh, one wave, one wavelength of light, or they at least a, a range of uh, wavelengths. They, it peaks in a certain wavelength. Then they uh, some of the energy gets lost, maybe to vibration or heat, and the energy that comes out is lower than what came in, right? Because some of the energy was wasted. So what you do is you can irradiate a molecule with maybe blue light, and then it glows with a green light, which is a, a, a longer wavelength or lower energy kind of light. So there's all different kinds of, and colors of fluorescence, but that's the idea of fluorescence and all kinds of things fluoresce, you know, scorpions fluoresce and minerals fluoresce, but we have um, in biochemistry, we're interested in fluorescent dyes, and maybe even natural fluorescence, like that green fluorescent protein. You know, certain animals have evolved fluorescent molecules for various reasons. So fluorescence is a really cool subject. And the other, why do we care? Okay, fine, animals glow. That looks cool and everything. Um, but we use fluorescent um, dyes uh, in uh, medical research to make certain molecules glow or watch a certain process happening. You can use them for some kind of biochemical assay. So fluorescence is a really hot topic. It probably always will be because we can make things light up that would not normally be you know, easily discernible. Um, the, a, a famous example is the brainbow. If ever, anyone wants to Google what the brainbow is, the idea is put a different color fluorescent protein in every neuron of a mouse's brain. And then you can actually see in color all the circuitry and connections of the brain because each neuron and each axon is a different color. So that's some, one of the applications is seeing things that would other, otherwise wouldn't have any contrast to them. You couldn't tell what was going on. How is fluorescence linked to your protein research? 
Yeah. So when I was in my PhD, we used a fluorescent dye to monitor protein folding. So that was the um, the, the original research that we did, uh, the, my, my um, research team. So what we um, what we did is we made a series of small peptides and we used certain amino, actually we used this amino acid, uh, coincidentally, we used cysteines, which had a certain affinity for another fluorescent molecule. So if you had the cysteines arranged on the protein a certain way, the fluorescent molecule was would, um, or actually was a pro-fluorescent molecule, it wasn't quite fluorescent yet, but when it bound to the uh, peptide, it would become more rigid, which allows it to become more fluorescent. So basically what, what, the, what the experiment was, proteins that are more folded will glow more when you engineer them this way, and proteins that are less well-folded will not glow as well. So it was kind of a proof of concept to say that we can use this fluorescent um, molecule to monitor protein folding. So theoretically, you could use that this technology to learn about uh, and uh, you know to research protein folding diseases. You know, certain diseases where a protein is uh, mutated and it's not folded correctly. Um, so you could theoretically use use that assay to um, to look at you know real life problems. Based on fluorescence, you wanted to decide how much a protein is actually folded and that link that to something else like a disease or something. That's that's what it could be used for. Yeah. So so the main work that I did was on the proof of concept, you know, figuring out how do you how do you actually make a protein glow when it's folded and make it not glow when it's not folded. And fluorescence is something we find often in nature actually, like uh, a lot in uh, ocean life. Do you know why that is? It's still a matter of debate of why fluorescence shows up in the ocean and also bi bioluminescence also, right? Could have something to do with, um, well, we know that some uh, famous bioluminescence is used to lure fish to another fish for food. Um, but why do things fluoresce though? Could be just coincidental. So there could just be molecules that are produced maybe for sunscreen or protection uh, against uh, UV damage, just happens to fluoresce. But when a molecule fluoresces, it's kind of wasting some energy, like I said before. So energy comes in, some is wasted, and then it gets emitted at another wavelength. So that might be the reason that we see fluorescence in fish and other things, because if you're, you know, sitting out in a, in the sunlight, you know, in, in kind of a, a shallow waters, you're getting irradiated all day long. Maybe you need some fluorescent molecules in your skin just to, um, you know, as, act as a sunscreen in a way. So that might be one reason, or there could be reasons for communication. You know, certain fish may may um, have eyes that are tuned to see the fluorescence of, you know, the, the patterns on other fish and things like that that they know of. So, um, so th they still don't really know because we can't uh, interview a fish. Because then they could just, hey, why does your friend fluoresce? <laughs> Tell us about it. But um, so those are some of the reasons that fluorescence shows up in um, in, in in the ocean. One interesting thing, as, as you go down, obviously, um, into the water column, most of the wavelengths get filtered out. You're left with basically blue light. So if you've ever gone snorkeling or scuba diving, everything's more or less blue down there. It doesn't look very impressive. But you can imagine that if a fish was fluorescing green and it was producing its own green light at a depth, that might be seen um, and might stand out among the other fish uh, at, at those depths. So that that might also be a reason. You know, we see a lot of fluorescence in um, green or or blue, or sorry, green or or, um, or red. So those colors would be very uncommon. Uh, you know, several feet down or several meters down into the ocean. So so that might be why we have fluorescence also. So you mentioned fluorescence and also bioluminescence. You also have uh, phosphorescence. What, what is the difference between all those terms? Fluorescence is a sort of a passive process. So a molecule will be become um, irradiated by sunlight and then waste some energy and then emit a, a lower wavelength, different color. 
So that's um, a very passive process. The bioluminescence is the process where you actually are using energy to create your own light. So, you, you know, you'll actually, uh, the, the cells will be consuming ATP or, or uh, they, they will have some kind of um, molecule that's getting uh, used up in this process. So you actually have to be constantly creating new molecules that, that, that feed the bioluminescent uh, uh, system. So, um, so that's kind of like thing you'd see with like a firefly or, you know, a, a deep sea angler that is actually producing its own light. Now, the interesting thing is that you also often see a combination of fluorescence and bioluminescence together. For example, the jellyfish that produce that green fluorescent protein I showed you before, that GFP doesn't operate by itself. There's also a bioluminescent molecule that works in concert with it to produce light. It produces blue light, but then that blue light gets shifted to green because of the fluorescent molecule. So there's a part, there can be a partnership between bioluminescence and, and biofluorescence to not only um, so to make to produce blue light and then turn that blue light into green light. So that's how the that's what the jellyfish do. So there's definitely there's some reason that the jellyfish is producing the light because it's very intentional. It's not oh I just happen to have a fluorescent like the um, the scorpions. We don't really you know I don't know do scorpions need to be fluorescent? But the GFP um, it's very it's a very uh, targeted you know process there. Yeah, that's really insane because yeah you can think it, it yeah transforms the the natural light but it also produces its own light to produce or to reflect. So that's really interesting. It's like in the absence of, of natural light, I'll just produce it myself. That's fine. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, and also in 2021, I think there was this whole thing about all the animals they found in museum actually that were fluorescing. Oh, in in, uh, in, New Zealand? in where? Um, I think it was in New Zealand. I'm not completely oh, okay. sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, because it was also the like the platypus and stuff like that. There were all stuff. Oh, yeah, uh, right. Yeah. Uh, that, that was a, a whole thing because they then they started searching the muse museum and a lot of animals that they didn't expect were all fluorescing and they don't really know why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was definitely something that happened in the last like 10 years where people started to realize. And I know a couple of the people who were doing this with marine um, marine organisms. But yeah, things that people didn't know were fluorescent. They just started to shine a light on them and then they realized. So yeah, theoretically, you could go out and explore you know, a jungle somewhere and find some new fluorescent stuff. Could could happen. There's also been a lot of like genetic manipulation to make animals fluorescent. Um, is there a practical reason for that? Or is it just like something fancy that people want to do? Yeah. So if you ever want to see the um, genetically modified GFP, just go to any pet store, you'll see the glow fish, which are the fluorescent fish. They're not naturally fluorescent, at least here in the United States, they're in every pet store. And you buy fluorescent lights for the fish tank, and there's usually fluorescent rocks too, but the fish are fluorescent and they've been genetically engineered. So if you remember a minute ago, I showed you that fluorophore, the central piece of the uh, GFP, you can actually modify different amino acids nearby. For example, this, this ring here, this is, a, this is a, um, a tyrosine. If you change that to other things, You'll get all different colors. You'll get cyan, and you'll get um, yellow. Yellow is a sort of different process. Uh, you can get blue ones. So you can get blue FP, cyan, F uh, cyan fluorescent protein. All the other <laughs> I said blue FP, BFP. Um, so that's that's how that works. The the muted changing a, flu a fluorophore to to change the color. Um, practical reasons. Let's say you wanted to stain. Let's say you want to look at a cell, but you wanted to see how um, you know one protein and another protein interact. 
you probably need to make one protein, one color and another protein, the other color. And then when the two colors come together, you know that their proteins interacting, for example, or, or you can tell, um, oh, how about this? This organelle is fusing with this organelle or something like that. You could, or you, you could, you could theoretically look at those kinds of um, changes if you have multiple fluorophores. There's all kinds of other reasons to have different color fluorophores, but um, <laughs> those are some of the, the easy ones. Do you still work on fluorescence or do you do something totally else now? Yeah, so I, I was a professor for a while. I got tenure, but then during uh, the pandemic, I decided to change uh, what I'm doing. And I'm actually working in high school now. We have a really beautiful um, research lab, though. So that, they actually do basically college level research at this high school. Um, so I'm able to still do protein expression work. So I'm actually I'm working on some um, fluorescent protein expression of some uh, fish that I have collaborators who have uh, basically found these fish that are fluorescent and they um they know the gene that causes it to be fluorescent so i'm working i'm uh, working to express and um you know uh, do experiments on those proteins so actually actually doing the same this you know almost the same kind of level of work that i'd be doing in, a, in the college also what is the current goal of your research so these these proteins have never been expressed these are uh vertebrate fluorescent proteins which are all very new um like i said like like you you mentioned um finding fluorescence in vertebrates is kind of a new thing like you said like you know going to the museum and finding everything so it's never been uh, expressed so you know trying to express it uh, theoretically we could crystallize it see how similar it is to other things that have been expressed there's another there's another uh, eel protein that's also been um crystallized so you know there's this new world of vertebrate um fluorescent proteins and and uh, other interesting proteins that might be you know wor worthy of exploration what are some of the major challenges currently in your work well so i mean like i said i'm mostly doing my teaching now so this is you know i'm not um sitting in lab for 18 hours a day like, like i used to um but the challenges are yeah typical protein expression challenges you know solubility um you know these things don't necessarily want to be expressed in bacteria but um but it's going okay though we have we have protein so we're, we'll we'll keep keep going with it um it's really interesting working with high school kids to training them because you know they've never it's the first time they've ever you know expressed the protein so it's like an eye-opening thing for them Maybe we can go a little bit further on that teaching. Like, where does that drive come from? Yeah. So, you know, I like teaching anyone. I'll teach anyone about anything. I like teach drawing or music, whatever. Um, you know, I, I just like, you know, helping uh, helping kids and, and understanding how their minds work is, is really interesting to me. But the drive to, you know, dedicate 10 years, basically, all, all my time since graduate school, all my free time, um, to uh, giving little kids a, a window into the world that I only learned about as a graduate student. Um, there's all different motivations for it. Um, we can get, a, get into what each one might be. <laughs> but um, I guess the most, you know, oh, outwardly interesting one is that, you know, we need a generation of scientists that is different from the generation we have now, because the progress is we're, we're, we're progressing so quickly. It's like an exponential um, growth of scientific knowledge but in school that's almost unchanged uh what the kids learn so the the divide between what is what the kids come out of high school or college knowing and what they have to do as a as a someone to contribute to science in the future it's just getting larger and larger what's going to happen in 100 years when we're still learning um, you know, that, you know, what, uh, what a hydrogen, what H2 atoms are, you know, and, and what's, what CO2 is. And then we have, I don't know, nano architecture robots making things for us. Like, like, how do you, that something has to change. We have to really, really change what's going on. And it has to be faster 
then you know the the pace the pace of education research right now it can't be these like little steps it has to be like a big step yeah. you have to take a big leap of faith that other things can be, that we can make a big change and it just has to happen right away so we can we can uh, analyze how it's going later but uh, we have to do something quickly so that's one big motivation is just you know I felt like I was very unprepared for graduate school um, you know I was lucky enough to get into graduate school uh, a really good graduate school and I got into a really good lab. But I, I just knew like once I started and I, you could tell from other people too, that like we, there, we should have really done better in the lower levels because there's so much time. You have 12 years. That's an enormous amount of time to get stuff done. And I didn't know basic stuff that I should have known, that I felt I should have known to, to make a contribution. So like I'm filling in all those gaps myself. I wish that I could get other people to realize that this is that this is something to do. But at this point I'm doing it. I'm sure there's other people doing it. I just don't really know where they are. Um, but that's a really important part. We need like a rapidly improved um, K-12 system where kids are. And also that goes to teachers, too. Like it's also teacher training um, because the teachers are not well trained either. You know, they may take one chemistry course and then become a chemistry um, teacher or, or, or a, a science teacher in the elementary level. So this is also a way to make um, teachers more comfortable because I wouldn't be comfortable teaching chemistry if I took, you know, intro gen chem, you know, gen chem course in college, I, I wouldn't be able to teach chemistry. So this is a way for making teachers feel more comfortable also if they, if they see how fun it can be um, and how, you know, it's connected to everything. So, so that's one big thing. So just trying to make a change to the world. That's a big one. I just really like doing it. I like learning stuff that I didn't never knew before. So this is just a way for me to like, I'm, I'm doing a, a unit right now on, um, food coloring and pigments in nature. And this is not something that, you know, you really study very much, but it changes the way you look at the world. Like every food, oh, I know that the pigment that makes that, that drink blue now. So that's going to be a really fun unit for the kids to learn too. So I just like learning stuff. And I like answering these questions that are not necessarily like, um, you know, MCAT questions or, you know, um, chem GRE questions, just questions about life and like how things are. Um, and that's why I feel like it's also missing in chemistry curriculum is just like the playful nature of, oh, I wonder why that is purple. I'm going to try to figure that out. And there's no, you know, an analysis of it. There's no, you know, math problem that I have to do for it. It's just trying to take in what you see around you and, and learn how everything works. I really recognize that drive because actually my main drive for doing this podcast is because I love learning new things. I love science in particular, yeah. and I, I want to share what I learned. So this way I'm actually learning and sharing at the same time. Totally. Yeah. Same, yeah. same for me. Yeah. That's why I'll, you know, I'll be, you know, one day I was reading about, um, uh, hemoglobin and then I stumbled across the worm hemoglobins, which maybe that might be something for, if some of your um, listeners want to look into worm hemoglobin, which obviously carries oxygen in the blood of the worm, but the worm hemoglobin is so much bigger it's amazing so our hemoglobin has four protein components the worm hemoglobin i forget how many it has like a hundred a couple hundred or something it's gigantic so it's like a gigantic hemoglobin that binds so many um hemes and so many oxygens so i learned that and i was like i got to tell the kids about this so i made a quick lesson about it and then that day you know, I, like I told, and they were, and that's like their favorite lesson. Like they, they still talk about worm hemoglobin, uh, particularly the uh, the giant tube worms that live in um, the deep sea vents. They have a giant version of hemoglobin. So, um, yeah. So just sharing what you know and and creating an opportunity to to learn 
And I, yeah, I've learned so much by by doing um, these classes and by creating this curriculum. One thing that I always wanted to know, since ever since I was in um, uh, high school, I remember I was interested in how come there's a certain isotopic um, distribution of the elements. For example, there's a lot of um, oxygen sixteen, which has eight protons and eight neutrons, but only a little bit of oxygen seventeen. And oxygen 17 is stable. It's not radioactive. So why is there so, so little oxygen 17, but so much oxygen 16? So that's true for every element. So there's got to be something there. Like, why is there one and not the other? So I made this giant lesson on um, how stars create the elements, stellar nucleogenesis. So this is also one of the, you know, um, the, the crowd pleaser lessons that the kids love. It's an, it took me a couple of years to make this lesson, just this one lesson. I had to do all the research. But we get we, we answer that question. Why do stars make only um, oxygen 16 and not the others? Um, why is so much carbon 12 made and not carbon 13? Um, so it's just um, amazing to to get to that, you know, to, to, to go spend your whole life learning chemistry and then later in life, like, see, okay, now I understand the isotope distributions and it's connected to how they're made in stars. Like everything we do here on the earth is somehow connected to this, this, you know, vast history. And it's that, that, profound, you know, understanding is not lost on the kids too. They totally get, you know, how connected that makes them feel to the, to the universe. I'm sorry, but you have really piqued my interest. Can you explain the link between stars and the isotopes? Oh yeah, sure. Um, let's say I wanted to do um, carbon 12. Okay. So on the left, we have three helium uh, atoms. If you have three heliums in a star, and this happens in stars all the time, there's, uh, there's heliums there. And if you take those three heliums and fuse them together, it makes a bigger atom. Okay. And this is what happened. This is the job of stars. What stars do is because of their immense gravity, they crush atoms together and they can form larger atoms out of those things. So, I mean, this is kind of a very obvious one, but, but look at our heliums. We have uh, helium. Each helium has two protons in the middle. So the big red ones are protons. So there's two protons and two neutrons. Neutrons are the gray ones. So two, two and two. So if I add two protons plus two protons plus two protons and two neutrons and two neutrons and two, two neutrons, I get six neutrons and six protons, which is a carbon 12 um, uh, atom. So that's that's why there's so much carbon 12 around in the universe and very little carbon 13. So that's just the very beginning one. A lot of them are much more interesting. You're also noticing something really interesting on the bottom here. We have the masses Okay, so if you look on the periodic table, you see all the masses. This also confused me like endlessly. Why is the mass of a helium 4.002603, but the mass of a carbon is 12? Carbon 12 is why is it why is it a round number? These are kind of answers that we we can all get we can get into. But something really cool that happens. Watch this. If I if I take three uh, three heliums that have a mass of a little bit more than four, and I fuse them together, I don't get something that has a mass of more than 12 it's exactly 12. Okay. So carbon is exactly 12, but the things that make up a carbon are more than 12, right? It's, it's 4.02 times three. So what's going on there? It should be 12.078, but it's not, it's just 12. So what, what is that? That's the missing mass um, that we are releasing when we do fusion reactions. So some of the mass that the heliums comprise of is being lost to energy. And that's what, that's what starlight is. So stars are doing two things, and they, they, nobody knows this because it's not, no one talks about it. It's not in the curriculum, so it's very not talked about very in much detail. But stars are doing two things: they're taking um, small atoms and making them into bigger atoms. So they're creating heavier elements, which we need uh, to have life and things like that. And it's also releasing energy in the form of light 
um, which is what starlight is. So we're we're making both the stuff of the universe and the energy that would can power um, life also. So I just love I you know I I just feel like everyone should know star. I mean I'm not I'm not a I'm not a, a astrophysicist, but I just feel like everybody should know. Um, some star chemistry because it's so cool and just so, connects people. It connects you so much to everything else in a way that's even even more than biology in a way. I can imagine that children are baffled by it that they they must love this stuff. They love this. Yeah, they don't actually. There was one kid that was like, "Are we done?" Like, was that five weeks later? Was like, "Are we done with star chemistry?" Like, where's we want more star chemistry? <laughs> so, uh, like, no, sorry, we have to go back to organic chemistry now. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and like in terms of organic chemistry, what do you teach them then? I've done a lot of experimenting with organic chemistry. Back when I, in the very first lessons, I thought that I could teach kids electron pushing right away because I liked it so much. You know, arrow, using arrows to show how electrons move around. Um, if if you don't know, if if you're an organic chemist, what you're good at is arrow pushing, which means you take you take um this is a good model for it, but you take you take an electron pair and you show how it moves using an arrow. And that's how you make a new bond or break a bond or, or do an acid-base reaction or something like that. So that's that's what organic chemists do. I tried doing that in the, in, in the very early classes. It didn't work. It was one of the few things that I couldn't get kids to do. I could get kids to do almost anything else, but but electron pushing was hard. What I did is, you know, after you know teaching hundreds and hundreds of classes, I've come back to it. And I'm still working on um, how to actually get organic. I mean, the kids are learning organic structures for sure. I mean, they understand bonding rules, but actual organic chemistry, where we see how reactions work, that's a, a harder level. But my advanced kids can do that um, because they really, really internalize what a bond is. Once the kids really get what a bond is, that it's an electron pair, and they get some concepts of like electronegativity and um, you know some acid-based chemistry. Once once they know what molecules are going to do then they're ready to understand how they do it. So yeah, we have, I use an organic chemistry textbook and we do whatever reactions that are interesting to the kids. So yeah, the, the kids can do organic chemistry too, no problem. Um, but but it's a little bit more of an advanced um, level for them. They have to kind of be very familiar with with structures before we get into you know um, actual reactions and things like that. Yeah, but this project of yours has become immense, right? It's not only in the US, it's worldwide. Yeah, I mean, I don't say, I, I wish it was immense, but we have about, I don't know, it's probably around 2,000 homeschoolers. That's pretty big. Yeah, and and that's, you know, that's not like a YouTube view. That's like someone who like spent like $170 to like access it and buy the model kits and ship it to themselves. So it's, and, and they do it. So yeah, it, it's really an honor that people would like trust that I can help their kids in that way. It's really like every time I get an order, I'm like, it's just, it never really goes away. That like feeling that you're actually, you're doing something helpful for someone and you don't really even know what that person's going to do with it. I mean, even a weak student, like I was, I wasn't a very strong student, actually, even a weak student when they're eight, they could do something completely crazy and profound when they're 25. So it's not even about like, oh, this kid's a genius right now. Look at what, look what a great genius they are. It's like, oh, this kid did three lessons, but weren't they weren't so great. They kind of took a pause for it. Um, but that makes an impression still on them. And that could do something else later in their life. But in general, though, these kids do a lot of work with the material. They get very far. And especially the kids that do the Zoom classes with me, they're with me for years now. And I can see them develop. I can see them. How, I can see how they, you know, I, I really know what they know. And um, I always enjoy bring other educators or scientists to see see it in action because it's really like takes your breath away like what these kids can do and um you know how how it really could be everywhere where this is happening 
but we just need some, we need more um, care or more um, buy-in from, you know, administrators or people in, in power. But yeah, it's really cool with kids in Australia using this, a lot, hundred, a couple hundred in Australia, and then thousands all over the United States and Canada. And um, yeah, like a f- one or two in every country, not every country, but maybe like 45 or 50 countries. So it's really cool, you know, sending the stuff to all, all over the world. Um, never thought that I'd be able to do that. Yeah. And I believe that that is having a great impact on those children. Um, and maybe also just what is your take on, like you said yourself, you are not the strongest student when you are uh, younger. Often people or parents actually, or, or teachers go like, oh, this is not a strong student. We should not give them the hard problems. But I don't think that's always the best decision. But what is your take? I agree. So I had reading issues. I just decoding issues. So I I was kind of felt like I was smart, but I couldn't finish reading anything. You know, I was always the last kid to hand in anything. Um, I was always a very good writer, but I couldn't really read a book. It was like really a, a trouble for me to read a book until like college almost. So really put me at a, a, a like a handicap um, all throughout K-12. And um, yeah, I'm sure it changed what I was able to do with myself because I couldn't handle the, the amount of reading. I remember on the on the SAT, whenever there was a, um, a, a re- like a paragraph to read, I just wouldn't even that's I wouldn't even do that question because I knew that it would take me 10 minutes to read it. I, there, I have no hope of, of answering it. So I was already, you know, taking something like the SAT. I already couldn't answer. I don't know how many questions that would be 20 questions. I already just couldn't do at all. So um You know, the, the curriculum, you know, it's it's weird because the people approach me, they're like, oh, is this curriculum for geniuses or something? I'm like, no, I'm not a genius. I couldn't even read when I was eight. So I'm designing this for someone who can read like a few words at a time and uses a picture because that's how I got around everything. I just looked, I, I used pictures and I, I did things that were more visual. So it's written for someone who almost like has a learning disability in a way. It's not written for geniuses, but if you are profoundly gifted, the visualizations just become part of you. I mean, the kids don't forget what, what these things are. So it works well for all learners, including someone who might be a little bit slower or has, you know, comprehension issues and things like that. Um, so that, that's who I'm trying to reach. I'm trying to reach everybody with it. It's definitely not some kind of elite uh, program. And the whole point of it was actually to make um, these subjects more um, like to, to kind of democratize it and to make it so that we didn't just have some kind of elite kind of kid, you know, um, you know, climbing way to the top, leaving everyone else behind. This is really for everybody. Um, but unfortunately, you need schools to um, kind of collaborate with you, with you to get access, you know, to get access to those kids. So that's one of the challenges <laughs> that the programs had is, you know, how do you, you know, I can make the thing better and better and better. But at, at some point, you need uh, grownups to, um, you know, to, 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 to also collaborate with you. You know, I can work directly with the kids, but the grownups have to help. And the homeschool parents, you know, it's an easy sell for them because they see, oh, I want to help my kid. Let's just do it. But for schools, it can be, you know, there can be some bureaucracy. So finding out how to overcome that is uh, something that has to be done in the future. And they need to see the value of your project, actually, which is hard when you're still stuck in the old system of teaching. Yeah, and but some schools have done it, and they've done it successfully for multiple years. So it, it really does work. It's just you know the, there's limited time that the schools have, but it really does. It's going to take something from the the top to say we need to try some really really drastically new stuff. Um, otherwise, it's just going to. I mean, it's fine if they want to keep it the same way it's always been. We'll just have you know 
it'll be certain populations that are being doing programs like this and and um that's just the way it will be um but one way that i'm going to try to get the word out about this is by um doing this summer camp which i'm not sure if i told you about it too much before i think i did tell you a little bit about it before um but we're you know one of the ways to get people to see what this is because it's, it sounds probably pretty crazy the way i'm talking sometimes we've documented a lot of the programs so i've had two docu little documentaries made about um uh, one is in a public school, one is in a private school. They're on the website. And then um, the what I'm going to try to do this summer is to create more of like a feature length documentary that follows certain uh, of my really great students that have been working with me through the Zooms, follow them to the um, summer camp that I'm running here in New Jersey, where all these kids who have been sort of trapped in Zoom world for three years we're all going to come together and, you know, kids are flying in from Australia for this and they're flying in from California to meet each other and to be together and to do some practical biochemistry research and physics research, uh, physics, uh, not research, uh, activities, you know, lab activities. And um, just to kind of network and and meet each other because it's um, it's going to be really, really cool to see that. So we want to document it. So we'll have a documentary um, hopefully made that shows, you know, just what the kid, just what this means to the kids and how it's really part of their lives now and, and part of their future because they all want to help the world with this knowledge somehow because they know this is a, a special way that that only they can um, that only they have to help the world in a, in a way. And can you tell us a little about what you're going to show those children that are coming to your uh, summer camp? Yeah, yeah. So in the camp, they are they have a very uh, strong theoretical knowledge. We've been doing organic chemistry and biochemistry. They are fluent in protein structures. They can use pymol. If any people um, are in science research, they probably know what pymol is. It's, it's that 3D um, viewing program I just showed you before. Um, they can do all those things, but they've never actually held a pipette. They've never made a solution of something. They've never weighed something on a balance. So it's just really crazy that, you know, they they are, it's, it's almost like, um, it's I don't know what it's like. It's almost like a Benjamin Button or something where they're, they're like, they have an old mind, um, like, like a, a sage-like understanding of chemistry, but they've never actually weighed something before on a balance yeah. so this will be their chance to do the practical some practical stuff and to feel like they um you know they can express a protein they can do a dna gel so we'll just kind of do some fun you know that we'll, we'll transform a bacteria to make a fluorescent bacteria with the gfp like i showed you before so they'll do some you know common lab manipulations and then i have another um collaborator of, of uh, also a former um professor uh, and um, physics uh teacher and she's going to be doing quantum physics experiments with them like double slit and things like that because the kids who love chemistry also love quantum mechanics and uh it's really weird they all want to know quantum they all want to know about quarks and stuff and i'm like i don't know about quarks like you have to find someone else to tell you about quarks um but yeah the kids who get into this they 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 want to get even smaller so we're going to give them some quantum also um we're also doing a day where we go to princeton university for them to do poster presentations so they're they're doing some um kind of like literature review and they're going to make a big they're, they're going to have little groups that will make posters and then they're going to present to the faculty at princeton um which will be really cool it'll be their first first chance talking to other scientists really besides me and um hopefully you know there's different things that could happen from that but you know it, it makes them feel seen because a lot of these kids who are doing the program they often are not believed sometimes by their schools or sometimes by you know other adults around people they're trying to collaborate with they don't even believe that they really can do these things so you know the the issues that i had in the beginning where people didn't believe that that i could teach these things 
Now the kids have the same. I've unfortunately passed along the, my problems. Them now people are having trouble, you know, taking taking them seriously because it's just so wacky, really. When, when you when you say, uh, "Oh, well, like, yeah, I study um, protein folding, blah blah," and I'm, I'm seven years old. Um, so we need we need visibility and we need for them to be seen and uh, taken seriously. And something has to be done with them because someone who can do all these things and is not allowed to is a waste for the society, but also, you know, psychologically, like they need, they need to be uh, doing something and they need to be felt, uh, feel like they have a meaningful existence and that, that what they know can be, you know, used by something. Yeah. And if, if they can do that stuff at, at seven, what they'll be able to do when they're 20, I don't know. It's, be, it yeah, it's hard for me to know either. <laughs> do we want everyone to be a scientist? No, everyone, not, not everyone has to be a scientist. But what if everyone had a literacy and, and a sense of wonder and an appreciation for biology at a molecular level? What if someone, when you went outside, you didn't just say, oh, that's a pretty leaf. What if you, what if there was something more there? You know what I mean? Um, when you listen to music, if you're a musician, you have a deeper understanding of the theory that goes into it, the appreciation of how hard it is to make that instrument, you know, how to play that instrument. So it's the same thing. Like why, why can't science appreciation be something that we want to give everybody, you know, not everyone has to be, um, or, or can be a, a researcher at Harvard. So, um, so there's other levels of this too, you know, can, can policymakers make better decisions if they knew what molecules were? <laughs> um, you know, there's all kinds of reasons to educate the public about <laughs> this kind of stuff. I totally agree. Not, not everyone needs to be a scientist, but you need to know the possibilities and then you can make a decision for yourself, what you like or what you don't like and what you're good at and stuff like that. If I heard you correctly, so yeah, it's biochemistry literacy for kids, but you also talk, talk about quantum physics or someone else in, in the team. So it, it's going in other branches as well. Yes. So my program is, um, it's an introduction to chemistry, biochemistry and organic chemistry. And then I also have some other things like uh, nuclear chemistry as part of it also. So I'm really more of a, I kind of stay, stay in the things that I have some training in. I don't think I will ever have the background to teach quantum physics. So there's another um, uh, person, Azadeh Samadani, who's also at my school. She was a Brandeis professor before she was a teacher um, with me. She like is really a pro at teaching kids too. She appreciates the, the need for bringing this down to um, the lower levels in school. So she's been kind of my collaborator. And at the camp, it's going to be great because the kids will have, um, you know, like they'll have like a morning of biochemistry. Then like the afternoon will be, you know, quantum physics basically. Um, and that'll be more, you know, they're not all super trained in physics, but, you know, it's just kind of like a, a fun for them to get a, a, a toehold in, in that world. I'm sure those kids will have a blast. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. It, there's all different, you know, dimensions of what it could be. Um, but, you know, imagine kids who have collaborated with each other on Zoom, who have learned together and can speak a language that basically no one else around them can speak, only their friends on Zoom. And now this is the first time that they're able to speak to each other in that language in person. It's just going to be like crazy to see, you know, what what happens to, you know, these kids from all over the world who've known each other and now are to find, find their family and their home. It's going to be really cool to see. So I'm really looking forward to it. I truly believe that. We're going to round up around here, but is there like a take-home message you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, let's see. So the take-home message is don't be satisfied with the status quo. Look to see what's possible. You can challenge what's happening. And even if it's a little uncomfortable, or even if people don't believe you at first, um, if you know what you're doing, you can prove them wrong and you can um, you know, make a positive change in the world. So, you know, the establishment is there to stop 
innovation, unfortunately. So everyone else can be here to do the innovation. And uh, that's my take home, I guess, is to just keep trying, even if it's frustrating. I know that's a cliche. People told me the same thing when I was trying to give up. But uh, yeah, if you have something good and you don't give up, eventually it starts to you know help help people. That's wonderful. <laughs> okay, this was the 15th episode of Apple Finch Pudding. I want to thank Daniel Fried for the information and uh, let's meet again for the next episode of Apple Finch Pudding. Mm -hmm.